We're going to be in Philippians chapter 1, verses 27 through 30 this morning. So if you'd like to turn there, that would be a, a great idea. Um, if you want to use the Bible that's in front of you, it's on page 980, I believe. Last week, Bill said something that I don't know if you intended to kind of be just a throwaway um, phrase in the middle of your sermon, um, but he hit the nail on the head in terms of where I'm going to be going um, and I believe where Paul was going both this week and next week. You said this, Bill. You said, the gospel advances outside of the church. And I think you meant outside of the church, like outside there through the church. As the gospel advances in the church. The Lord uses us to advance the gospel out there as the gospel advances in us, inside of his church. That's exactly right. And you're going to see in these next two passages, today and next Sunday, that that's what Paul is saying here. Today, he's going to build a big picture vision of the church of Christ. And next week, he's going to handle some more particulars in the church at Philippi that need to be addressed. And I think for us, that's what I'm trusting the Spirit is going to do in us today and next week too. Help us see a big picture of God's view of his people, the church, but then also deal with some particulars within our church here. All right? Let me show you a picture of somebody that's made an impact on my life. Is it working here, David? It was. This, there we go. All right. So last year, on this very day, one year ago, October 6th, I went to my 20th reunion, homecoming at Wheaton College. And part of my, yes, 20 years is a long time. 21 years is even longer. All right, this was last year. Um, one of the guys that made a, one of the largest impacts on me while I was in school there was my football coach, the head coach, Mike Swider. This year they're celebrating his 200th victory. He's like number 12 nationwide, any division, any NCAA, NAIA, whatever, he's number 12 in active coaches in numbers of victories, all right? Coach Swider has a fire in his eyes unlike anybody else I've ever known. When I think of the Apostle Paul, I often think of Coach Swider, all right? Because I imagine that Paul had a fire in his eyes when it came to his calling from Christ to preach the gospel and shepherd churches. But let me talk about Coach Swider real quick. Coach Swider gave the most inspiring pregame speeches. Totally off the cuff, with his blonde hair flying behind himself, getting up in our faces with his steel blue eyes looking into our helmets, encouraging us to go out there, play for the glory of God. Play for one another. Be tough. Stick together. And we would always go out there like banging walls and hitting helmets and shoulder pads and all that. Have you ever been a part of a pregame speech in a football locker room before? If not, I highly recommend it if you get the chance. Here's the thing. It, does, it doesn't stop for Coach Swider once guys graduate from Wheaton. Let me read to you a letter that I just got, all the alumni football players got at the beginning of this season, just a few weeks ago. He said this, Men, it's that time of year again, when I once again have the privilege of coaching the greatest game in America, football. In no other sport are so many required to die to themselves and live for something bigger. It is a requirement for success. The same goes in life. Causes are the greatest motivators and worth sacrificing for. Selfishness and self-centeredness are destructive forces. Self-centered individuals cannot be trusted and never last. For instance, I would much rather fight a mercenary who is fighting for his own glory than the guy who's fighting for a cause that has set his soul on fire. For the former, there is a cost that ultimately is no longer worth it. The latter fights until death. Some life causes that you must learn to die to, men, die to yourself for, are your marriage, your family, and your faith. 
the cause of Christ. I hope you are living for these and other noble causes rather than for glory. They bring meaning to life. And then he signs off like this. Stay tough. Don't flinch. Die hard. That's Coach Swider. By the way, Wheaton had a huge victory yesterday. They beat the number five team in the country. Wheaton's number nine, so go Thunder. What I, what I want you to see from that is not to somehow glorify Coach Swider, but to help you see in that letter something that is true of Paul too. Coach Swider's encouraging his men that have played under him, fought together to continue to strive for the glory of God, for great causes in life beyond their time in college, beyond the football field. He used to say to us, men, if this is the hardest thing you ever have to go through, you've led a pretty privileged life as we're throwing up after working out, things like that. But he was right. He was right. He was always trying to develop us into forward-thinking, long-distance, sacrificing players and men who fought for causes, who went for it with full self-sacrifice. That's what Paul is trying to get at with the Philippian church also. The great cause that he is bringing to them in this passage we're going to look through this morning is the cause of the gospel. The cause of the good news of Jesus Christ revealed through his church. However, part of the reason that he is writing this letter to the Philippians is because he also has his finger on the pulse of this church. Much more than Coach Swider has his finger on the pulse of me or any of his former football players. Paul knows the church in Philippi. And he knows that they are in danger. In danger because the church is divided. It's populated by sinners. Christians, yes, but sinners. He knew that there was something rotten in Philippi. And, and this passage right here, and next week's as well, is his, his goal is to get at that rottenness, to reveal the abscess, and see the grace of the gospel address it. Let's go to the text. Philippians chapter 1, again, page 980 if you haven't found it yet. We're actually going to start a little bit earlier than our passage today, just to give you some context. But have that thought in your mind that I'm going to detail a little bit later on, that this is a church where there is division happening within this local body. Think on that as you read through this. Paul says at the end of verse 18 of chapter 1, Yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. As it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. For I am to live in the flesh. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. Do you, do you see the fire in his eyes as he's writing? But now hear what he says. But to remain in the flesh, to continue to live, have breath in his lungs, a beat in his heart, thoughts in his mind, to remain in the flesh and live is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain. I will continue to live and continue with you all. Why? For your progress and joy in the faith. So that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. Basically to summarize, did you, did you, did you see the word progress? Paul here is saying, listen, 
for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. But I'm convinced that I'm going to continue to live because Philippian church, you need me to continue to live. You need to make progress in the faith and God has appointed me to help you progress. On top of that, I'm going, I'm planning to come and visit you again. So that in me, you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. See, these letters, the Pauline epistles are not set in some vacuum. He personally loves these people. Remember from Bill's introduction a few weeks ago, Paul was the one that led Lydia to faith at the shore of the river. Paul was the one who was in the prison with Silas as the earthquake comes and the jailer's about to kill himself and Paul says, stop. And the jailer says, what must I do to be saved? He says, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, you and your whole household. And that very day, they were all baptized. Paul loves these people. He was with them from the delivery room of their faith. He was there in the struggle. And now he's in prison addressing them from afar and speaking to them in love and saying, I'm going to continue living because the Lord wants me to keep living for your sake and the glory of Jesus Christ in you. So with that as the context, it brings us to our passage for today, verse 27. When you were a kid, did your mom say, I'm going to run to the store. While I'm gone, don't burn the house down. That might have been if you were a certain kind of kid. Maybe you were a different kind of kid and your mom said, while you're gone, would you do the dishes and mow the lawn and take out the laundry and burp your sister and... Maybe you were that kind of kid. Maybe you were somewhere in between. Regardless, sometimes we have expectations put on us where the, the person in charge basically just says, you've got one job. This is what I want you to do. You either succeed or you fail at that one job. That's kind of become a cliche in our culture today. You had one job. Usually meaning that person failed in that job. Here's Paul saying, Philippians, you've got one job. You've got one job. Verse 27. He communicates all of that through the word only. Saying, the only thing I'm expecting of you is this. But it's a big expectation. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. What's going on in that expectation there? This is your one job. What I want you to do, church, he's addressing the corporate body here, not a certain person or people within the church. He's talking to them as the church. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel. This is the only imperative in this section of this of Philippians, in these verses here. It's the only command that he's making to them right now. He, he's looking them in the eye and he's saying, this is what I want you to do. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. This should leave us thinking, what does that mean to live a life that is worthy of the gospel of Christ? And how can we as a church do that? Be that. Fulfill that. I'm guessing the Philippians were thinking that same thing. How are we to be a church that lives in a gospel-worthy way? What is Paul's expectation of us? Well, what the Philippians would hear in Greek, we don't quite hear in the English. What they would have heard was, you've got one job, true, just like us. Then they would have heard, let your manner of life be as worthy citizens of the gospel of Christ. That's what this imperative, this command is pointing them to. Think of yourselves with this identity as gospel citizens. 
and live out of that citizenship. So the Philippians were part of a Roman free city. Philippi was a Roman free city conquered by Augustus less than 100 years before they would have been receiving this letter. And they lived in that freedom. They didn't pay taxes like other people pay taxes. They didn't have the thumb of Rome on them like others in the empire had the thumb of Rome on them. They were free people living in a free city. Within the Roman Empire, couldn't really get much better than they had it. So Paul here is saying, listen, you know what it looks like to live as free citizens under Rome. You've been called to a greater citizenship. A citizenship within the kingdom of God through the gospel of Jesus Christ. You are citizens of Rome, but you must look at the higher identity. You have been called to be citizens of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Live in that. Live in that. Okay. Is that all that that means? No. Because we haven't really defined the gospel yet. If you read this without any gospel, you would think, okay, so the gospel of Christ is the rules that are revealed to the Philippians, and maybe in the whole Bible, to the Philippians in particular, these, these injunctions from Paul, these things that you must do in order to become worthy of the gospel of Christ. That's not Paul's thinking at all. That line of thinking would be, I am not a Roman citizen, therefore I must accomplish something in order to become a Roman citizen. I am not a citizen of the kingdom of God. I must do something to become a citizen of God, of the kingdom of God. But of course, we know that's not Paul's aim. Paul's aim is to help them understand you already are citizens of the kingdom. So everything that I'm going to ask of you is rooted in that identity. You already are citizens of the kingdom. I think there is something else that's a little further back in history that the Philippians might have been thinking. I'm not going to pound the pulpit saying this is what they were thinking, but they might have been thinking of this. As current day Philippians, when they receive this letter, like I said, less than 100 years before, they would have known that their city was conquered by Augustus, brought into the Roman Empire. However, 400 years prior to this, around 350 BC, another king conquered Philippi. And at that time, Philippi was not called Philippi. The king that conquered Philippi was Philip II of Macedonia. Philip II of Macedonia was a man who was the third son of a king. And because Macedonia was such a weak kingdom, he was mostly captured. And in other kingdoms, <laughs> he was the son of a king. So when they when other kingdoms came in and they took over Macedonia, the sons of the kings were sent to other empires. That was Philip's lot in life until his two older brothers died and he returned to Macedonia and he became king. But Macedonia was militarily weak, socially weak. They were empire fodder for other more powerful countries, other more powerful city-states. The thing is, Philip II of Macedonia he had the political will and wisdom to begin to unify the city-states of Greece. He formed the League of Corinth, and he was the head of the League of Corinth. So all of a sudden, this, this weak place of Macedonia begins to grow in influence and impact as these city-states are brought together into the League of Corinth. Philippi, also conquered by Philip II of Macedonia, then named for Philip II of Macedonia, would have experienced this citizenship, this belonging to within the League of Corinth, and they would have seen the benefits of being united with the other city-states and not being small themselves, but having the strength of this combined unity. Philip II's son was Alexander the Great. Alexander the Great, who was 
perhaps the greatest general in the history of the world, who conquered in just a few years from Greece all the way east to northwest China, never lost a battle. That was Philip II's son. Through Alexander the Great, the Greek hegemony was spread throughout the Middle East and Mesopotamia and Northwest Asia so that Greek became the language. Greek culture spread through all of that. And if you know your Bible, you understand that at the fullness of time Christ came, at the fullness of time when Christ came, Christ came right into that Greek cultural hegemony even though Rome ruled and allowed for the gospel to be spread throughout all the Roman Empire through the language of Greek. God has all this planned. But what I want you to see is this. Philippian, if you're a Philippian believer, you're thinking we have been citizens of Rome, but even further back there was a time when we became citizens of Macedonia, citizens of the League of Corinth, when there was a man who came and he began to gather people together into a kingdom, and then his son came, and his son spread the kingdom far much further than ever. I think this was a pointer to them of the gospel, not that Philip Philip of Macedonia and Alexander were gospel people. But in their rule and their consolidation of power and the spread of their empire, they could see kingdom dynamics at play that are true in the gospel. See, the thing is, when it comes to the gospel and it comes to who we are, God is the king. Always has been, always will be. He is holy and wise and just and trinity and eternal. He is the one before whom there was no one and there will be no one after him. He is the one who has always existed and will forever exist. He is the holy one without blemish and fully perfect. He is sovereign over all. Yet, when he created man in his own image, to be his image bearer, to be his vice regents, to rule the earth under him. We know man failed. Man chose to sin and begin building our own semi-autonomous kingdoms where we began to use our own resources, our own supposed wisdom, our own wills, our own talents to build little kingdoms where we could set down our flag and rule. And that's been the curse ever since Adam and Eve. Individuals who are meant to live under the sovereign and gracious rule of God, but instead we build our own kingdoms. Yet the prince, the mighty one, Jesus Christ, second person of the Trinity, gave up his kingdom to come to earth so that he could bring the kingdom of God to earth, embodied in himself, and see that kingdom spread. And instead of Alexander, who went and ruthlessly conquered lands, Jesus came in a spirit of humility, in a spirit of self-sacrifice, walked a perfect life that we could not live as the prince of all glory, and went to the cross so that we would not die in our own itty-bitty kingdoms but we will be rescued from the wrath of the king who said one day all those kingdoms will fail and they will fall. And anyone who is still living in their kingdom will be judged for their idolatry and self-rule. And Jesus said, let me rescue out of your own kingdom building and bring you into the glorious, eternal kingdom of Christ. To all those who understand, they, they need to escape from their kingdoms of self and be rescued into the kingdom of God, Jesus says, turn from your own kingdoms of sin and turn to Christ. Repent from who you have been and come to me and all who I am and have done. And as we place our faith in Christ, we are made new. We are delivered from our kingdoms of darkness and into the kingdom of his glorious light to forever be made citizens of the king. 
meant to live no longer for ourselves, but the one who lived and died and rose again for us. This is the good news that we proclaim daily, that we should preach to ourselves minutely, and that Paul is calling the Philippians and us to consider as our citizenship. We are kingdom people in Christ. We are citizens of that greater kingdom. And every single teeny, teeny weeny, every single little part of our lives in Christ comes under that identity of citizenship in the kingdom. And Paul is challenging them and saying, that's the gospel. Remember who you are within the reality of the gospel and live lives worthy of that good news. So how does that actually look? Because Paul doesn't leave it up there in the theologically theoretical. He's speaking to a people, as I said before, a people that he loved and that he knew exactly what was going on within this local church. What does it look like to be a church that is gospel-worthy? Look what he says, continuing in verse 27. So that whether I come and see you or am absent, so again, he's referring up to verse 26, I'm, I'm trying to come and see you, but even if I don't ultimately see you, I may hear of you at least that you are standing firm in the faith. That you are standing firm in the faith. Think of unity. Think of being rock solid. Think of being unmovable. Paul is telling the Philippians, stand firm in the faith. Standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, unified purpose, and in total agreement with one another. This is, this is this standing firm that Paul is looking for in them to, to, to see a unity shown in their steadfastness. I apologize. I'm about to use another football analogy. You know a team is doing well when their quarterback is comfortable. You know a team is doing well when their quarterback is comfortable because that quarterback can take the snap, take a few steps back, and he's just surveying the field. His feet are usually moving back and forth like this because he's trying to stay in, in rhythm as he makes his progressions, who's open, who's not open, makes the pass. That's standing firm. He's helped in that by his offensive line. They're standing firm together, unified in the play that they are executing at that moment. The thing is, if you have a monster defensive line or Khalil Mack on the other side, all of a sudden, all of a sudden, that quarterback gets happy feet. And all of a sudden, he's back there like this. You never thought you'd see me dance on stage, did you? All right? Here's the thing. Thanks, Nawana. Well, emphasis on little, Nawana. Um, here's the thing. Once that quarterback gets happy feet, his throws are off target. He doesn't know where he's going to go. The offensive linemen don't know where he's going to go. The running back is like, who do I block to help my quarterback make this throw? The offense is in shambles because they're not standing firm in one mind, in one spirit. The, the uh, opposition is causing chaos. Paul here is saying, no, your one job is to live a life worthy of the gospel. And the first part of that is to stand firm with one mind in unity. There are two parts of that standing firm. One is striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. 
striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Now, I told you earlier that I was going to help you see why we know there's division going on here. You see this, encouraging them to strive side by side for the faith of the gospel. If you keep your finger there and just flip over to chapter 4, Paul is concluding the letter here, so we'll get to this in a few weeks. But he says this, Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. Again, he's, he's coming to a close in his letter, and he's telling them, I love you, you're my joy and my crown, but I want you to stand firm. I want to emphasize again the need for unity within the church. Using the same word, stand firm, that we just talked about, in chapter 1. But here's where it gets really interesting. He says, I entreat Yodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yodia and Syntyche, two women in the Philippian church, I entreat them, I plead with them, agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together. There it is again. Labored side by side. That word that gives us in the English, labored side by side, is the same one that we see in chapter 1, labored side by side. Those are the only two times that Paul ever uses them in the New Testament. Have you ever been in a church where there's division, where there's rancor, where there's deep disagreement, where there are really hard meetings and there are side conversations that other people suspect because there are side conversations, and you just you wonder where the church is at. If you've been in that sort of situation before, you know that when there is difficulty in the church between people, it is this underlying current. It's like the groundwater. It's like the groundwater that is unstable under a marshland. Everyone just kind of knows that things aren't quite right because so-and-so and so-and-so or group-and-so and group-and-so aren't united on this. And it becomes the dominant thought pattern of the church. It freezes the church to a certain extent. Waiting for resolution or, on the other hand, taking sides. Trying to figure out which way is up when you come on a Sunday. Who do I talk to? Who do I not talk to? Those sorts of things. If you've been in a church like that, it infects everything. And most of all, it saps the church of the power of the gospel to impact its community and to grow together. That's why Paul is so insistent upon this. Stand firm. Stand firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. He's saying, this should not be happening. Syntyche and Euodia. He's just alluding to them here, but everybody who's hearing this knows what he's talking about. Agree with one another. Strive side by side for the faith of the gospel, as he says in chapter 4, as you have already done alongside me. These were co-laborers with Paul. These women had influence. They had game. They were gospel people. But something had happened there where there was a division and it was hurting the entire church. Strive side by side for the faith of the gospel. And then he comes to another part that helps define this standing firm in one spirit. It's striving side by side, but it's also not being frightened in anything by your opponents. This is the beginning of verse 28. Not frightened or intimidated in anything by your opponents. Who are you afraid of? 
Who is our church afraid of? Do we have opponents? Did the Philippians have opponents? The Philippians obviously had opponents because Paul is saying, don't be intimidated by your opponents. We're not exactly sure who these opponents were. They, they may have been Judaizers that were coming in and saying, hey, now start following the Jewish law. But that seems kind of unlikely because there was no synagogue in Philippi. There was not like a deeply rooted Jewish system of worship there. Was this opposition commercial? Did Lydia, the dealer of purple, as soon as she became a Christian, did her business suffer? Because all of a sudden she was one of them. She could no longer worship the cult of the emperor that business was so tied up in in the Roman Empire. Perhaps it was the jailer. Maybe he suffered some opposition. Once he came out, probably a pretty rough and tumble dude's dude, and all of a sudden he comes out and he's being baptized by these prisoners who preach a crucified Christ crucified on a Roman cross. What kind of opposition would the jailer have felt? Still trying to do his job, but now he's one of those Christians. Can he truly serve Caesar now that he has confessed Christ? Once, now that he has a citizenship in heaven, a higher identity? Is this the opposition they were facing? Perhaps. The thing to understand here is that there was opposition. This opposition caused suffering. This opposition caused suffering. And this suffering is talked about later on in verse 29. It's been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. We talk a lot about suffering, as we should. Um, as pretty privileged Americans, we tend to put suffering in a certain box. We tend to think of economic suffering or um, health suffering. We might put mental illness into that box. We could put un unemployment into that box. I, and I'm not saying none of those things relate to suffering. But what I want you to see here is that Paul isn't talking about those kinds of sufferings here. Paul is talking specifically about suffering that grows from standing firm in the gospel and the opposition that that brings to the church. That's in a different box that, brothers and sisters, I don't think we open very often. Something the Lord's been working on me this week is, why don't we open it? Paul gives us the answer. The answer is fear. We fear those who would oppose us rather than fearing God who in Matthew 10, Jesus says, don't fear those that can put you in prison or take your life. Fear the one that can cast your body into hell. Yet, we fear, don't we? We don't open up the box of prioritizing the gospel, living as citizens worthy of the gospel. We don't... We don't we don't go there often when it comes to things in our life where things might rub, where there might be friction, where there might be pushback, where there might be debate, where there might be loss of a job or missed opportunity, where it might mean speaking up in your class, where it might mean fill in the blank. Ways, places where God has called us to be worthy citizens of the gospel, yet we step back because that's just not where we want to be. That's uncomfortable. That is suffering for the gospel. And that happens to other people in other parts of the world. 
I will raise my hand and admit to that. At my core, I'm a fearful man. A man that far too often does not believe the gospel when it comes down to it. If I believe that the gospel is good news to save sinners from their eternal destruction, should I not be praying for, looking for, opportunities to step into and proclaim the simple good news of there can be forgiveness for you. There can be hope found on the other side of your sin through Christ. But I've got to say, I'm a fearful man, sinfully fearful, fearing others. And sometimes they're just hobgoblins. I'll imagine, well, if I say this in this situation, this is how so-and-so will respond. I create a scenario that hasn't even happened. And which scenario do I follow? A scenario based on the reality of the gospel that God has called me to proclaim the gospel in humility and in love, contextualized personally, of course. Is that where I normally go? I got to say, no. I have to say, normally, I take a step back and take a, instead of taking a step forward. I push the box to the side instead of opening it. In his book, Evangelism as Exiles, Elliot Clark writes this. It's, it's really good, so bear with me. In his in his chapter called Fighting Fear with Fear, hear what he says. And I, I think just the title of this section is going to drop on you. He says this, We please those we fear. We please those we fear. What does it actually look like to fear God? Am I suggesting that the Christian life demands we walk around with a Bible in one hand and a lightning rod in the other? Conversely, Am I suggesting that bold evangelism involves shouting down strangers on a street corner with warnings of impending doom or venting on social media about the wickedness of sin? To get an answer, I think we can actually learn something from our experience. When we observe that our problem in evangelism is fearing others too much, we should note the form such fear takes. We typically aren't running from people in terror. We aren't cowering in a corner. More often than not, we're not even faced with the kind of fear Yusuf, one of his um, Muslim believe, Muslims turned Muslim believing friend, Yusuf experienced. Rather, fearing others more than God usually demonstrates itself in trying to please them more than God. To put it another way, you know you fear someone when you desire their approval and live for their praise. But as we explored last chapter, the Christian in exile is called to embrace the shame and social humiliation that comes as a package deal with the cross. We're called to live for the approval and honor of King Jesus alone. We're to be first and foremost God-pleasers and not, as the old King James Version says, man-pleasers. In fact, Paul's letter to the Colossians is helpful to see this connection. He wrote that servants shouldn't live to please their masters, but fear God. In other words, fearing is paralleled with pleasing. We seek to please most those we fear most. Here again, Scripture connects this heart attitude and disposition with faithful gospel proclamation. Christians who try to please people ultimately fail at pleasing God and fail at proclaiming His gospel. And far too often, this is the problem in our evangelistic endeavors. We're fundamentally committed to keeping people happy and having them like us having them think we're smart, contemporary, hip, tolerant, progressive, fun, approving, and the list goes on. We want to please them, and we want them to approve of us. We fear losing a friendship more than we fear losing a friend. We withhold the truth for the sake of acceptance. We polish our social media persona 
to remove the rough edges of religiosity and we nurture relationships with unbelievers for years without broaching the subject of Christ. Why? To please people. In our twisted understanding, we reason such people-pleasing efforts are for the sake of future gospel opportunities. But in reality, we're often just fearing others instead of God. That fits me to a T so often. Um, I think it's important that while I know what I just read and what I've just said should land on us as individuals, I think it's important that Paul is not just talking to individuals. He's talking to the church. And so his pastoral imperative for the church is, church as a body, remain faithful to the gospel. Stand firm. Strive together. Don't be afraid. But how does that look? Does it mean that we as a church organize rallies? I don't think that that's what Paul is talking about. Does it mean that we have more events where more people can come? Maybe, but I don't think that's actually what Paul is talking about. See, Paul is thinking like this. Paul is saying, listen, when I tell you to stand together, it's because the church of Christ, because of Christ, is an immovable force. It is a force that, that needs to be moving forward even as when it is pressed back, it is able to continue moving forward because the phalanx, that's this battle formation that was invented by Philip II of Macedonia, because this group of soldiers is united both to oppose opposition, but also to take ground. But without each of the individuals within the phalanx, there is no phalanx. Without each of the individuals within the church, there is no church. But if the individuals in the church see themselves as just individuals and not part of the church, then that church is weakened. That church is unassuming. That church is pushed around. The phalanx breaks. The formation doesn't hold. And so it comes to me as I'm thinking on this, how do we get at this living in a manner worthy of the gospel as a church in unity, not frightened collectively? How can we not be frightened collectively? And how can we be on mission with God in His kingdom advancing through the church, striving side by side collectively without, because I don't think this is what Paul is saying here, without planning big things? I'll just give you a couple of ideas. One is this. We often talk about the unity of the church. And rightly so. Throughout the New Testament, I think especially of Ephesians chapter 4, the Bible talks about us being unified in Christ. In Ephesians chapter 4, we're made one person. Very different people, different groups, made one person in the flesh of Christ. There is that unity. However, I wonder if... Unity has become cliche for the church. We think, yes, we are united. How often do you think of the United States of America and what that means for us? Eh, united? Okay. When we think of the church, united, sure. Theological reality. But there's another word that I wonder 
if it would help us put some wheels to our unity, and that's solidarity. If you remember the 1980s, anyone remember the 1980s? There's a man named Lech Walesa who had a group in Poland. It was actually a labor group that pressed against communist oppression. He was an electrician at one of the ports, and he rose up in power within this union, and they called it Solidarnos or solidarity. They were used to push communism out of Poland. But it was not a, hey, we're a bunch of people that don't want communism anymore and we want our freedom and we want our rights. No, they marched. They were not just unified, but they were in solidarity. See, solidarity is unity for the sake of a cause. Isn't that exactly what Paul is saying here? You're united for the sake of a cause. You're, you're not united just to come here on a Sunday morning and say, we are one in the Spirit. We are. Yes, we are. But he is saying, you come together here to form your phalanx. To say, don't be afraid of the gospel. Other people believe like you too. Your brothers and sisters, Christ has been exalted on the cross. The road of suffering, follow Christ, as we sang earlier, to follow Christ is to say, yes, Lord, I will follow wherever you lead, even if it means meeting opponents, even if it means suffering, even if it means death. Because for me to live is Christ but to die is gain. So we gather together and we say, we're not just united, but we are in solidarity with each other, with Christ as our captain. We have to move. We have to see our citizenship actuated, actualized within our lives. Would you look at your life right now and would you ask yourself, is there a part, even a little corner of my life, where Christ is not welcome, where my citizenship in his kingdom has no effect, where I try to put him in a box in that corner and I leave him there and I'll, I'll, I'll be a citizen in other areas. What I would suggest to you is perhaps it is in that very corner that God wants to blow some things up in your life. That if you would say, yes, Christ, and take this corner, my office where I've never spoken the name of Christ, where I've never even prayed for lunch with my coworkers. Maybe that's the corner that he wants to blow up. He's saying, don't be afraid. Don't fear opposition. Who are we fearing but, but man? What can man do to us? Man is but dust as we are. But I don't want us to fall into the trap of somehow creating this, this apparition out there of the opposition. Because that would be a wrong response as well. To somehow say, there is opposition out there and they are this, this blank front of impregnability that we are just coming up in battle against all the time. Because, as I was reminded earlier this morning, the opposition is peopled by people. Image bearers of God. Those who presently, even though they may be showing opposition to you, and you may fear their opposition to you, ultimately their opposition is eternally opposed to God himself. They may rage at you, but they're really raging against God. They need Christ just as you and I need Christ. A couple things, just to finish up here. Number one, we're going to have a time of prayer here in a minute. Um, where I'm going to ask us corporately just to begin praying for people. You can name names if you want, or you can just name like how they're related to you. But just this is a way to 
corporately move forward, stand together and strive for the faith of the gospel is to pray together for those of whom we are in relationship with when we're outside of these walls. Um, I'm going to talk more about this next week, but just hear this for now. Um, See if I can find it. Yeah, there it is. Listen to what Paul said earlier. I read it earlier. Paul or um, Bill preached on it last week. He says this, I know that your prayers and the help of Jesus Christ will turn out for my deliverance. That's an incredibly powerful and hopeful phrase. That you have the Holy Spirit working for Paul's deliverance, for his salvation, both from prison and ultimately to heaven. And that it's the it's the Holy Spirit doing that in conjunction with what? Did you see it? The prayers of the Philippians. So, brothers and sisters, if we're going to move out without intimidation, if we're to go out and say, Lord, where do you want us to take the gospel? How can we stand firm? How can we strive together? How can we not be intimidated? Then, Lord, use our prayers and the work of the Holy Spirit to move us forward. This is not in our own strength, but we come to you looking for what you want to do. A few other things, and then I'm going to wrap up. And I'll do these quickly, I promise. Listen to this. Where, where are you, consider this, where are you in other parts of your life where God has begun to show you other believers all right, I'll, I'll give you an example in our family's life. Um, Simeon is a freshman at Pierce. Our other three kids are over, I mean, at Sen. Um, our other three kids are at Pierce. Just this year, there are, to our count, four Christian teachers at Pierce, only one of whom we knew last year. All right? Nat just met another believing family that goes to Missio Day just on Friday. We the Lord is multiplying and opening our eyes and putting us in conversations with people at our local school that is helping us to see there are a group of believers here. So the question I'm asking myself is this. If the Lord is helping us see these people, is it just for the sake of comfort? Whew, there are some other Christians there. I don't think so. What I'm asking myself is, Lord, is there a way that brothers and sisters can get together, albeit not part of the same local church, though some of us are, those Christians can get together and say, let's begin praying for this place, for this school, for these students, for these teachers. And to be able to say, let's, let's in solidarity, the, the believing people at Pierce see the Lord work in this place with this people. We've been praying for Christian friends for Simeon as he goes to Sen. Some of you have told this story about, or told this story to, because I'm, I'm, I'm just jacked about it. It's incredible. As we're, Simeon started running cross country a few weeks ago, and at the very first meet that we went to, where there was an opportunity to meet some other people, the first family that we met, and this is the first family that we did not know from Pierce already. We already knew some other families. This first family that we met, I went up and introduced myself to the dad. His name's Luke. And I was just like, something's going on here. And through our conversation, I just, I, I just shot my shot. I said, listen, where do you go to church? He's like, so actually, I'm a pastor at New Life Community Church in Bridgeport. And his son, Josiah, takes the red line up to Sen every single day, runs cross country with Simeon. Whoa! That's something only God could do. Why is Josiah Dudenhofer taking the red line all the way up north? I don't know, but God knows. Now is there room for me and Nat and Luke and Melissa to get together and begin praying for sin? I sure hope so. Consider, maybe in your office, maybe in, your, in, a, in a portion of your family that sees the brokenness in the rest of your family. Consider the different arenas of influence that the Lord has put you in. When he opens up your eyes and puts you in conversations and you realize, realize, aha, 
He's a brother or she's a sister. Don't just leave it at that. Say, Lord, what do you want from us now? How can we be in solidarity together? Consider local churches. Our church, definitely. But consider what Grace Family is doing up there. Pray for Grace Family. Pray for First Free. Bill and I have gotten to know the new, the new pastor over at First Free, Jason Abbott. He and his wife, Natalie. Yes, her name is Natalie. They just bought a condo over on Ravenswood. They have five kids. Their oldest is Simeon's age. He goes to Von Steuben. The other four kids all go to Pierce. And Jason is a thoroughly gospel-centric pastor. Praise God for God doing that at first free. So even if you just count those three, and I know other churches, but even if it's just those three, Grace Family, Edgewater, and First Free, a gospel line, a gospel thread going through Edgewater and Rogers Park. So look for other churches and how we can, how we can be unified with them, but in the gospel specifically. And finally this, unified here in our local church. And we're going to talk a whole lot more about that next week. But in my best Coach Swider speak, remember what Paul said to us. Stand firm, strive together, don't be afraid. Stand firm, strive together, don't be afraid. That's partially why we come to this table. is because Christ stood firm. He strove together with the Father and the Spirit and went to the cross. So that, and he went in a way unafraid. He went for the joy set before him so that he could take our fear of punishment and death and make us alive again.